Hello everybody, hope you're well. I cannot get the Nassim Hamid. 1997 ring watch tune out of my head. We're going to be talking about that a bit later on because it's not one of Naz's uh, greatest hits or one of Naz's big hits from the 90s that we're going to feature on this week and arguably one of his, if not his best performance, one of his best on-paper results the night he took another title from a veteran American Tom Johnson. That's coming up on this week. We'll take a look to the action coming up this weekend at uh, Wembley. Young star Adam Azim, perhaps looking to follow in those famous footprints, is strutting his stuff. The, the super featherweight division taking shape. We've got results from last week and we've got a fight coming up this week as well. That uh, ring walk theme taking me back to the 90s. Matt Christie, how are you? I'm good, mate. I'm good. Not not as good as you probably were in the nineteen nineties, <laughs> but here in twenty twenty three, I'm 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 doing well. How are you? Yeah, good, good, good. I, I was right in my pomp. I mean that that period ninety five to well, I just started uni ninety seven. We're going to talk about Nassim Hamid. I was right in the throes of clubbing, right in the middle of it. And I've got to say that those mid to late nineties. I I know older people tend to say that. It's not like the old days, but my goodness me, that, yeah, the, the, there was nothing quite like that period, that explosion of dance, dance music and, and, and culture in the 90s, nothing quite like it. And Naz kind of milked that. And you look at Naz's Ringwalk tunes, how many of them featured the kind of hits of that year, the dance music hits of that year, of at, of at that time as well? There were just, there were, there were loads of them. I know he had the... I know he had the Hot Steppers track, didn't he? he? He used Michael Jackson once upon a time. I think he had Thriller, one of his ring locks. But usually it was some of those 80s bass lines, sorry, 90s bass lines that were the theme to his sort of limbo dancing all the way to the ring. That period of time that you're talking about there, you know, it brings to mind a song that came from long before the 90s, but Big Yellow Taxi. You don't know what you got till it's gone. <laughs> and that, that's very much the case. If there are people fortunate enough to be knocking around listening to this in their early 20s, you're in your peak, folks. Make the most of every second. Well, sometimes people think that boxing people are trying to pave paradise and put up a parking lot with all the obstacles and the, the machinations. <laughs> Indeed, that, that there's something to be said. But the... You know, the landscape changing, uh, ever changing, it, it seems, in, in many ways. But we've got big fights on the horizon and, you know, some of the worst kept secrets that we've nodded at over the course of the last few weeks and, and month or so are starting to take shape. One of them, Anthony Joshua, against uh, Jermaine Franklin, of course, who gave Dillian White's fits and starts uh, in the last month or so. Um, Franklin is going to be the opponent on April the 1st. Interestingly, as a date, obviously no one's superstitious in the Anthony Joshua business. No, I mean, there's been just a, an outcry of criticism about this fight and I don't really get it. I suppose if you tie it into the price hike that DAZN announced at the same time, that it's more understandable to a degree. But in terms of Anthony Joshua versus Jermaine Franklin, Joshua coming back after two consecutive losses to the same fighter. 
looking very much to rebuild. Um, I think Jermaine Franklin is a very sensible option for him. And given where Joshua is in his career, um, psychologically, I think more so than anything else, this could be a decent test for him, in all honesty. Um, I don't think necessarily we, we, we should presume that it's going to be a walkover. What evidence have we got that it is going to be a walkover? Joshua hasn't walked over anybody for many years. Franklin has never been walked over. Um, I suppose, yes, it, w without question, it's it's not at the same level as Usyk. It's not the same level even as Kubrat Pulev. It's not the same level as Andy Ruiz or Povetkin or Joseph Parker or Takam or Klitschko. But he's not in that he's not in that headspace anymore. He's not in that all-conquering hero headspace anymore. And in order for him to get back to that, I think Jermaine, the, the, an opponent, the level of Jermaine Franklin might be just what he needs. Yeah, you you said that a few weeks ago when I when I earmarked Franklin as an, a potential a, a opponent. I'd, I'd I'd probably I'd be slightly lower down the the path of acceptance than you, but not anywhere near the 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 outrage of of others. Where where do we sit in terms of the the sort of returning champions who've lost to better fighters? working their way back. Where, where do you sit in terms of the... Or how would you explain the argument between those that say, once you become a pay-per-view fighter, once you've sort of broken out into that rarefied air where the better fighters operate, um, and therefore most of your fights should be against those kind of fighters, whether it's, you know, top 10 or, or, or whatever. Where do you sit in, in that kind of discussion or the kind of, you know, Joshua hasn't been good enough and you know, only just, not by much, at that at that high level, and therefore needs to to work on things to make sure he's better prepared the next time he comes up against a Nusik or a Fury or or a whoever, and therefore just needs a bit of time and therefore the right matches to allow him to progress and do that before it sink or swim again, and he's able to swim. We're, we're how do, how do you answer those two particular debates that, that I suspect people are, are having? I hope they are. Heavyweight history is um, rich with information. Um, it has so many lessons to learn. And although you would be foolish to presume that it simply repeats itself, um, I think that Joshua has probably been and is well advised to uh, just 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 take stock see 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 what what fighters have done in the past i think if it was just that one loss to usick the first loss he could write that off a little bit easier than two consecutive losses to the same fighter he's not the first heavyweight titleist to attempt to rebuild after that, and I suppose we could look at some interesting examples in history. Larry Holmes lost twice to Michael Spinks, didn't fight again for a while and came back against Mike Tyson, which I think out of every example is <laughs> probably the most foolhardy. Um, and he got blown away by a peak Mike Tyson. Money, money was talking very, very loudly in Larry Holmes's ears in that instance. We know that now. 
but he got blown away in four rounds and he didn't fight again for three years. Um, a more recent example, of course, is Deontay Wilder, who lost twice in consecutive bouts to Tyson Fury. Uh, he came back against an old sparring partner in Robert Hellanius, and all of a sudden, he's one of the most dangerous men in the world again after many, many doubts um, after those two defeats. Uh, but he, I think you could, I think you can compare Hellanius to Franklin. I think you could even say that Franklin will arguably have more ambition than Robert Hellanius. Um, Floyd Patterson came back after two very humbling defeats to Sonny Liston, two consecutive defeats to the same guy. And, and he was never really the same again, although he did regain his status as one of the best heavyweights in the world. But it was a careful rebuild for Patterson before he went, ed, went back in with anybody like Sonny Liston. Uh, Mike Tyson lost twice to Evander Holyfield. Uh, Evander Holyfield, although he drew the first bout with Lennox Lewis, you could argue that he really lost those two fights against Lennox Lewis. Uh, everybody had to take careful steps back. And I think Joshua, at this point, um, is doing the right thing. And I understand why fans will be perhaps frustrated after they were teased with the possibility of a Tyson Fury fight at the end of last year. Um, but I think there's a danger of looking at it a little too selfishly. And if we can somehow put ourselves in those gigantic shoes of Anthony Joshua and attempt to understand that he, I believe, is very simply trying to give himself the best chance of ruling again, that a fighter like Jermaine Franklin, particular, particularly when Joshua has got a new trainer on board, would be being too brave by going in with too higher uh, a calibre of opponent at this stage. Um, I think, as I said, when we were talking about the possibility or the, when, the, when it was rumoured that it would be Dempsey McKean, it isn't necessarily about the next fight. It's about where the next few fights take him, what he learns and how he can develop. But there is every chance, and I'm not saying Jermaine Franklin, I'm not saying I'm picking Jermaine Franklin, I'm not saying that, but there is every chance that the psychological scars that are there and that perhaps have been building since he went life and death with, with Vladimir Klitschko, um, they might be too deep now to heal. So wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if we never saw anything like the Anthony Joshua of old again. Okay, I'm not so sure about that. And I do think Jimmy Franklin's a good match stylistically, size-wise, for Joshua. Although, like Andy Ruiz, he's a smaller heavyweight with relatively fast hands who's going to come and give it a go. So <laughs> there may well be echoes of Ruiz in some ways. But I think Franklin will make it a, a good fight. He will try and he will come to win. But a, a smaller heavyweight who's l mainly going to be in front of Joshua... I think it is an opportunity for Joshua to to rediscover some of himself, maybe stylistically, with a blend of, of what he's been trying to do recently in fights against a very, very different um, opponent. So we'll see about that. That's on April the, the 1st. Dazon using that largely as a, an announcement for uh, their new payment scheme, their, their updated payment schemes, which generally 
is going to move from what was seven ninety nine a month to nine ninety nine a month. Now that is, if you sign up for a twelve month contract, you you will you will get the lowest price they have, which is nine ninety nine a month. Uh, which is an increase of two quid, but you have to sign up to a 12-month contract. Otherwise, you will revert to a 1999-a-month um, uh, kind of flexible contract, or you can sign up for a yearly contract, the same as the 9.99 a month. But if you sign up and pay it up front, you will get that for 99.99. So there basically three different options. It's it's a slight rise at a time when. We've spoken about this on two of the last three pods about the the kind of bang for your buck, but more importantly, the clamour for your pound. And everyone has got their fingers in the pie, whether it's Amazon, Netflix, whoever, Paramount, Disney, etc., 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 etc. And that's not even including your kind of regular BT or Sky subscriptions. So the, the whether you view this as a tipping point or not, it's just a further reminder that the clamour for your money from whatever direction, whether it's sports or otherwise, is increasing and it's it's getting costlier. And, you know, people will have to make decisions. Joshua is not going to be on regular pay, is he? He's going to be, surely he'll be on pay-per-view. He won't be part of the the, the kind of regular Dazzle subscription. The first fight is, uh, the first fight of the comeback is, Jermaine Franklin will be part of the kind of regular subscription and I've seen a lot of people um, being highly critical of what DAZN are doing in terms of increasing the price. The headline, of course, is that it's gone from seven ninety nine to nineteen ninety nine. And as you explained, <clears throat> that would be if you want to stay kind of on a flexi deal, uh, so you can opt out at any time. Um, I think what it highlights, though, is at a time where we are all looking at our finances at the end or at the beginning of a month and working out what we can and what we can't afford. Um, are we willing to commit to a streaming service where there isn't a great deal of sport on? And I think it puts so much pressure on Matchroom. And the temptation, of course, is to criticise Eddie Hearn and criticise Matchroom. But if you take their schedule that they announced this week just as a boxing schedule as opposed to something that's on zone. It is as good a schedule as any other promotional group in the world have announced. Um, might even be the best. They remain the most prolific promotional group on the planet. But I don't believe there's a promotional group on the planet that can make a sporting channel a value-for-money option all on their own. One of the fights, for example, is Lee Wood against Mauricio Lara. And I think if you are going to be charging something like nineteen ninety-nine a month, so that flexi deal, you would need at least something like Mauricio Lara every week. And then you would need some supersonic events like Katie Taylor versus Amanda Serrano kind of sprinkled in six, seven times a year. Then your £20 a month probably becomes like decent value. Um... But the problem that DAZN have got, and they've always had, is that aside from the boxing, there's not a great deal else going on. So if you want to pay the equivalent, so BT Sport and Sky Sports, if you break down your bill or an equivalent amount to that 1999, they've got 
multiple channels that are operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week with all manner of sport. I mean, frankly, I'm not interested in 80% of it, but there's always something. So you can there say that that is good value for money. Problem with DAZN is if you bring up, if you search for DAZN, look at their schedule, there's several days a week where there's nothing whatsoever on. Um, so there's an awful lot of pressure on Matchroom and it is still kind of regarded as a boxing channel when from the start they've been saying they're a sports channel. Um, but it's, I can understand why people are really frustrated with this um, because boxing by its very nature, has always been a sport in terms of its scheduling that flies by the seat of its pants. I've said that time and time and time again. There is no guaranteed resolution to rivalries, to leagues, to competitions that there are in mainstream sports. So if you are going to say, okay, well, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with DAZN because I want to see these fights. You're almost paying for some, you're almost paying for the unknown. You, you're you're kind of gambling on Matchroom, just one promotional group providing you with value for money. And that is the difficult thing, I think, with DAZN's model at the moment. Because we, we can see what they've got planned up until May, but what are they going to do in June, July, August, September, October, November, etc.? Now, we know that Matchroom will generally provide good fights, but there isn't a single promotional group on the planet that can guarantee good fight, great fight after great fight after great fight. Um, and I think, it's, I think, I think it's, a, it's, it's an issue. And we go back to Box Nation Days, a channel that, that you obviously hold very close to your heart. Um, but we can see that they were probably week in, week out, broadcasting excellent fights. But the problem that they had, of course, is that you'd be waiting. Sometimes you, it would be the Friday before you'd get an email to say, oh, we've got this fight tomorrow. Yeah. How can you possibly market that? And I know DAZN don't operate in the same way, but when you're coming out with a schedule saying, well, we've got seven fights coming up in the next next three months, give us your money, it's a hard sell. Yeah, and that from Box Nation, that was partly about organisation, but it was mainly about the marketplace because, you know, fights were simply too costly months in advance. And ultimately, the closer it got, the price came down and down and down and down. And it became a money grab in the in the week building up to it. And, and oftentimes, there would be compromise or perhaps some of those international uh, rights holders, promoters, TV companies, fighters or whatever, would, would be prepared to take less. So that's what ended up happening, I, I think, quite often with Box Nation. So it would be a bit kind of hand-to-mouth and last-minute, which for a business isn't ideal. For fans and for selling, it's absolutely not ideal. Um, it's, a, it's a very different kind of landscape these days. What I would say is if, if you are a Dazon subscriber at the moment, you, you, if you want to continue, you must sign up to the at least to the nine nine ninety nine nine ninety nine I should say so ten quid a month, um, twelve month contract because otherwise you will automatically revert to that um, 
1999 flexible one. So you will be on the bigger price and it will just do that automatically. So make sure if you are and want to continue that, that you do actually tick the box or acknowledge or, or actually sign up for the whichever of the, the, the plans that you, you want to go with. And of course, there is the spectre, and I mentioned it on the pod a, a couple of weeks ago, there is the spectre of the continuing eye-watering losses that are on the Dazone accounts sheets uh, running into to, to billions over the last, what, three, four years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and what they're, what they're attempting to do, it's not, they're, they're, they're not, trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes they're a subscription based business and in order to budget and to plan for the future you need to know how many long-term subscribers you've got so essentially they're trying to get as many long-term subscribers as they can by getting them on the cheaper 9.99 rate or getting them to pay and then they have got this long long-term um kind of budget that they can work with as opposed to people nipping in Paying, it, paying for one month, seeing the one fight they wanted to see, and then going away again. We can call them villains for increasing prices, etc., etc. But they have got—they obviously need to start making some long-term plans in order to get back some of those losses. And I, I don't blame them for this for this move. In all honesty, um, they can't continue the way that they have. Other newsline coming through. Um, Ryan Garcia Tank uh, Davis scheduled for April the fifteenth. Sounds like slight stumbling block. Hopefully, easily enough removed or workable. Um, and that is the old rematch clause. Now I'm going to get to an, uh, a review from from Danny Ward eighty seven on iTunes uh, shortly. It's a it's a different um, it's a different discussion on the same theme uh, regarding rematches. In this instance, with the fight set to be on showtime, I think the rematch clause that is being uh, set up into the, the contract for that, which remains to be signed, uh, whether it's Tank and his team insisting that the rematch would be on showtime as well, or Dazon, perhaps, and Oscar De La Hoya quite rightly saying, well, hang on, first fight's on showtime, the second should, should at least be discussed about being on Dazon. That, that seems a perfectly logical um, conversation, whatever your take on rematches, full stop. And that the, the review, a one-star review from Danny Ward. You tough, tough school, Danny. Tough school. I used to really like the pod, but the amount of con- contradictions in each episode is astounding. Says Danny. How many times have you both said there's no need for that rematch, and you're not interested in it because it was clear, conclusive. But now you're both interested in a rematch for one of the most conclusive fight endings. That's Smith against Eubank in years and you're searching for excuses. Come on, lads, at least remember what you've said previously and stick to that same mantra. Well, Danny, the the gist of that argument is absolutely fair and spot on. However, I do think it's slightly misguided about what it was, particularly that I said regarding rematches on the pod previously. And the point that I made is that in title fights, when you have a rematch clause, you are effectively hijacking the sport because you're taking up that title, you're taking up time, you're affecting other fighters who might be in line to fight for that title. That's the point I made about rematch clauses, hijacking the sport and those involved hijacking the sport and affecting the way 
that it impacted upon others, including us as fans and other fighters who might fight for those titles. Eubank Smith, two fighters towards the end of the career, no title on the stake. No title on the line at all. So the point about that, that I have no issue with that idea of a rematch, is because it's not affecting anyone immediately around those fighters. There's no title at stake. So that's the point I'm making there. And secondly, as ever in boxing, sometimes even when you get a seemingly conclusive ending, I, I, I don't think that told the whole story in that particular instance. Matt wasn't of the same opinion. Matt still feels that, you know, abilities and where they fit in as fighters, Smith maybe, maybe might have always beaten a Eubank and maybe could have produced that performance, even although bigger and arguably better fighters haven't been able to do that to Eubank, both in the ring without the head guards on and in sparring with them on. I feel that it may be, although a conclusive result, slightly more open-ended when we're having a discussion. But that that's just going back to your point about no need for a rematch because it was clear and, and conclusive. I, I still think that's discussable, as we said on that particular podcast. But the main point really, Matt, is, you know, rematches in title fights and the way they impact the sport. And this potentially is a title fight because Tank Davis has, has not that long ago defended his WBA lightweight title, of which there's probably about eight. The main point, actually, is that one star, <laughs> <laughs> because we wanted to, or we were interested, we mentioned that we'd be interested in Eubank Smith too, is really harsh. It's a really harsh score, Danny. <laughs> um, but no, I hear what he, I do hear what he says completely. Um, I'm not going to go back over Liam Smith, Chris Eubank at all. Um, but in regard to um, Tank and Garcia, you kind of almost, or I have long be, kind of become conditioned to just put your head down when all of these negotiations are being made public and then put your head out and smile and laugh and rejoice when the fight is made. Um, I just find it incredibly tiresome that we get teased with so many fights. And I remember saying to you, didn't I, was it the first episode of, of the year? I wouldn't be surprised if this fight doesn't happen. And here mm. we are. What, five episodes later? And it's still going back and forth and back and forth. Let us know when it's made. It's a terrific fight. I just hope it gets over the line. And I'll worry about the rematch if and when it happens. Yeah, well, that, that's, that seems to be, Danny, the sticking point in those negotiations. Thanks to Vinny Desi, who's been in touch five stars. Uh, always a joy and a pleasure to, to listen to. One of his favourites, he says. And Scrimmer's um, bemoaning the, the, the Tommy Fury, Jake Paul, um, what he would probably describe as a, a, a fiasco. Pretty miserable to see Tommy Fury and Jake Paul invited to be in the ring when a real fight was about to start. Uh, talking about, of course, just before the Art of Baterbi of Anthony Yard uh, a thriller on, on BT. Um, he says, lots of bad language, pathetic showing the lukewarm reaction from the fans at Wembley pretty much summed it up. Although, from what I hear, there were maybe a few people there who were, were 
were half interested in that. But Frank Warren should hang his head, says uh, Scrimmers, followed by a superb light heavyweight title fight that is everything good about boxing. I'm looking forward to the next transnational world rankings. But for me, Yard is now top three based on that performance. Boatsy or Smith won't want to go anywhere near him. Callum Smith has been announced, of course, on that uh, Dazone schedule. He's got a, a fight uh, coming up. Uh, Yard is now the best light heavyweight in Britain, says uh, uh, Scrimmers. Um, for me, uh, fighting more than creditably against the number one in the division warrants his elevation in the rankings, thanks to, to Scrimmers and his, his five-star. Yeah, that, that's kind of Tommy Fury, Jake Paul sort of tease for, for their fight that's going to be on, on BT coming up in a, in a few weeks' time. I, I sort of tune out personally, Matt. Um, I suppose part of me wants to say, if you're a boxing fan, be honest with yourself. It's actually probably only a concentrated or more likely exaggerated version of a lot of the stuff that's been going on in boxing for for decades and decades and decades. That that kind of stuff. I know it's it's probably more difficult to take for boxing fans because they don't think it's legitimate. And that's a fair discussion. But actually the antics and the nonsense and the promotion, that's it's the essence of boxing itself, isn't it? All of that stuff, that shit, if you want to call it that. Yeah, it is. And I suppose if you kind of break it down to its bare bones, you could argue it's as well-matched a fight as the vast majority that we'll see as main events that are televised in the forthcoming year. Um, arguably more so. Is it, a, is, it, is it a more competitive fight than Adam Azim's, for example, will prove this forthcoming weekend? Um, I'm not saying I'm, I'm, I'm down with it. I'm not saying that at all. I think that, 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 that they come along and they hijack interest is bothersome to those of us that adore the sport and everything that it stands for. But I also, I, I genuinely think that the sport needs to learn lessons from how appealing fighters like Jake Paul can be in a short space of time. Um, relatives that I have that are of a certain age believe that Jake Paul is probably the best fighter on the planet. He's the only fighter they're interested in. Um, and do we just ignore that generation and keep doing what we're doing? Um, I'm not sure how we're going to approach it, actually. And we're getting very, very close to it in terms from from, from the point of view of the Boxing News editor. Um, because frankly, if I was to put that on the front cover, I know for a fact that we get an almighty spike in sales. So am I doing my job correctly if I don't put that on the front cover? Still giving it some thought, but um, <clears throat> I mean, I'll be I'll be interested to see what happens in that fight. To be honest with you, I'm not sure which way it's going to go. Um, but we're not going to dress it up as elite boxing. But for two novices, it's an interesting fight. Yeah, and it, and probably fifty fifty. Although. Um I think Jake Paul's actually the slight favourite in it. Someone was bringing to my attention just the other day, which I, 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 I was surprised at. I, I suppose just because of 
boxing itself, you almost expected the bookies to, to have it the other way around. But anyway, that's uh, that's another discussion for another day. And good luck with that project inside your head over the course of the next week to, <laughs> to 10 days. If you, if, you, if you want to give me a call and you need some counselling, I'm here for you. No problem. I'm here. <laughs> Uh, we one thing we do know is that the ladies have been leading the way over the course of the last year or so, maybe slightly longer actually, and we got further evidence of it. It was underlined once again, Madison Square Garden at the weekend on that zone when Amanda Serrano, one of my favourite fighters, she's right up there with one of my favourite fighters to watch, once again got involved in a humdinger. This time it was against Erica Cruz, and ultimately Serrano's. I think punching power and talent were simply too much down the stretch. And at least Alicia Baumgartner um, just too good and hit too hard for Elder Mechaled. Uh, both Cruz and Mechaled producing performances, performances of raw courage that really stretched the boundaries of, of human endeavour. Uh, both of them came up sh- short, Matt, but they, they came up short in pulsating fights and it's kind of more of the same and more of the same, wonderfully so from the women. Yeah, I mean, top of the bill, two really good fights and some some well-matched fights further down the bill, which isn't always the case as well. Um, I mean, I, I've, like you, you have to admire Amanda Serrano, everything she's achieved and just purely what a good fighter she is. But if we're going to be honest, she's not the fight she was. No. She pulled it out. She pulled it out like great champions do. Um, But she's not the fighter that she is. I don't believe Katie Taylor is the fighter that she is. That's not to say that their rematch won't be mesmerising, that it won't be a two-way slugfest, that it won't deliver in the way that nearly everybody is expecting it to. But in the same way that we won't think twice about saying a male fighter is past their best, I'm not thinking twice about saying that Amanda Serrano is past hers. And I mean zero disrespect with that. But she is at the stage of her career um, where someone like an Erica Cruz could come along and cause an upset. So I think the Katie Taylor fight next is a very, very wise option for her. And I think it's a very wise option for Katie Taylor. And whatever they, the winner of that particular rematch does next, who knows? But um, I think both might be well advised to call this the ultimate kind of curtain call on two great careers. Well, the fights have been getting harder and harder, haven't they? For the pair of them, really. And you wondered after Serrano's slightly lukewarm showing post Katie Taylor in her first fight. And you, I think you did get further evidence of it. The, the only thing I would say, and it, it, it probably, you're probably right, logic dictates what you're seeing with your eyes backs it up, that at the age of 34 and, and knocking on for getting towards 50 fights, 47th fight, wasn't it, at the weekend... It, it's no surprise there's kind of wear and tear and it's been such a long journey and you can't, you really can't underestimate the emotional journey that I think a lot of these women fighters have been on where they've had to, you know, they've had to f- fight the sport, they've had to fight society's opinions of them, they've had to really fight just to be able to box and fight and 
that's something that we we can't even really imagine. You can empathise with it, but you can't really understand or imagine that and tied into who you are as a person, being a woman in a quote-unquote what was previously viewed as a man's world. You can't really understand what that journey has been like for any of these fighters like Serrano, what it is that they've had to overcome, never mind just the wear and tear and the, the punishment that they've taken, particularly in recent fights. And Katie Taylor, we've said it, you know, the fights have been getting harder and harder for Taylor and they've usually been long distance fights for Taylor, haven't they? The majority of them over the course of the last sort of four or so years of, of her career. So no surprise that there's frayed edges for the pair of them. I suppose the big question will be May 20th in Dublin. Uh, Eddie Hearn, in, in conversation with, with Steve Bunce, who was over there for Five Live for the weekend, um, for the for his podcast, um, saying that TBC regarding the venue, we we, we queried and questioned the, the doubts about Croke Park on last week's uh, pod, and he was, he was talking about the financial reasons for that. But it, it looks like um, May 20th and... The favourite at this stage is the, the three arena, which is the old point, isn't it? Where, coincidentally, Tom Johnson boxed once upon a time back in the 90s. Tom Johnson taking on Nassim Hamid at the, the London arena in this week coming up. But the old, the old point where guys like Steve Collins used to fight, now the three arena, that seems to be favourite. Conor McGregor fought um, Brandau there in a, in a UFC fight a few years ago. I think there was about nine and a half thousand there for that but I think with the the floor seating I think the crowd can get up to about 13 so either way Katie's going back to Dublin a homecoming for her finally I suspect she'll box the rest of her career in Ireland one way or another um, Matt even although she she may not live there and maybe her and Serrano at this stage of their careers maybe they'll meet in the middle maybe someone will be Less weedy than the other one. Either way, I suspect it'll be a fantastic event. I still believe it'll be a, a great fight and we can compare um, great rematches, great tr trilogies of the past and we look at fighters that by the time they were approaching the end of that rivalry... Um, they were not the fighters they were at the start, but that didn't mean that the second or third fight didn't deliver um, and I believe that this will be a fight to remember I think it will be a great fight I think it's it's still very very difficult to call um, but you just you know you just you just wonder how much longer both of them have got left and I think we're being completely respectful to ask that yeah and the, the only point I slightly digressed but the point I was gonna gonna make when I got into Serrano's journey I, I, I digressed but what I was gonna say is and, and this is going back to you know, I'd, I'd say this once again to Danny. That's why even when you get a result, conclusive or otherwise, there are always so many factors and questions. It's one of the things we love about boxing, that even although what you see before your eyes seems to be one thing, there is the possibility that there were other things at play. And that's what I love about boxing, trying to interpret it. It's what I love about horse racing uh, as well, is interpreting it. And it's, it's not straightforward. And that's just... It's your own personal opinion or it's your experience in, in the, of watching the sport or whatever. And the one thing that did occur to me, Erica Cruz, probably in terms of style, she, she could be called Erica Crude, translating, but it's just possible, Matt, as, as kind of crude as she was and, and one-dimensional, heroically tough, it could just be she, 
she had a style that was that was just difficult to, to box and fight against. It's possible. Just trying to throw that out there. I, I thought Serrano tried to box and should have been able to win a boxing match. And it looked like she wasn't able to do that. And that's that's my worry for where she's at in her career. Because I, I think she should have been able to comprehensively outbox, not outfight Cruz. And ultimately she had to outfight her. And I think that's a bad sign. But if anyone else said to me, Cruz, awkward style, you know, head down, just wailing away and... Maybe it wasn't easy to fight against that style. If, maybe that's true. I think I think we'll see, won't we? I think I'll be interested now to see where Erica Cruz goes. Um, that's the first time as well that she had operated at elite level. I know she had a belt, um, but we also know that in the female code, owning a belt doesn't necessarily mean that you are um, world class. And I don't mean, again, any disrespect by that. Um, but what Erica Cruz goes on to do now, that could look like, in years to come, a tremendous result for Amanda Serrano. So, yeah, we'll see what the future brings. May 20th, Dublin. Yes, please. Yes, please. Yes, please. <laughs> um, what about Baumgartner? I mean, she's yeah, the, the good thing about this this batch of fighters is from kind of featherweight up to super lightweight, well, 126 to kind of 140 pounds. They, they all want to fight each other, don't they? You got Chantelle Cameron in there. Um, Michaela Mayer, who was ringside for the Baumgartner fight. I mean, I think Baumgartner against Michaela Mayer is probably the biggest fight out there for them both outside of Katie Taylor. I mean, Baumgartner against Serrano would be a great fight. I think Mayer against anyone's a great fight. Big fan of Mayer. Um, but all options open for Baumgartner after she overcame an outrageously tough Mechaled, who looked by, like been moments away, Matt, from being stopped a couple of times. And she kept coming back. And... She was trying. She was trying, wasn't she? And and it wasn't just it wasn't just a, a kind of you know almost Terminator Delphine Pursum performance for her. There was a bit of head movement, wasn't there? And there was a bit of guile. And I I was so impressed with her because she could have got blasted out of there by Baumgartner, and she found a way to to kind of persevere, if not necessarily prevail. No, she had no business being in there, did she? I mean, if you'd have said at the end of round three that she would be still in there and scrapping at the end of ten, um, I'd think you were mental. Um, but, yeah, she came back. She made life really tough for Bam Gardner. I wondered if, 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 if Bam Gardner took her foot off the gas a little bit, whether she was doing that, thinking she was going to conserve some energy just in case... I don't think it was um, by choice, Matt. I, I, I think she actually gassed a couple of times in that fight. Yeah, and that, that, that round four, it did appear to be the case. Um, but I thought, but you have to give Baumgartner credit as well for finding a second and third and fourth wind. Um, that's not easy to do. And yeah, I like Baumgartner a lot. I'd like to see her go onwards and upwards. And at the elite level of the female code, there's some terrific fights to make. And maybe in the male code, I'm not so down with fighters jumping between weight classes, but I think in the female code, it's a necessity to make the best possible fights. And interestingly with her, Matt, it's amazing. And this is, this is why we talked about, you know, Jack Cattrall, Josh Taylor, why sometimes results that go down in history can, can 
you know, they're there, they're in the books and they can change the narrative. And in a few years time, people forget. And it's the, you know, Baumgartner Mayer could have gone either way. I thought Mayer won it. You thought Baumgartner won it. But that could have gone either way. Suddenly, it's all about Baumgartner. You know what I mean? Mayor's, Mayor's there, but she's kind of, she's the sideshow now and Baumgartner's the star attraction. And we're talking about whiskers. We're talking about a punch here or there. We're talking about interpretation of a fight. And that's only in a few months, you know, since October, November, that that's happened. Imagine you what it's going to be like in a decade. That's boxing. And it's, it must be really, really frustrating for some of the, the players who are, who are involved. But either way, options are, are open for Baumgartner at whatever weight. And interestingly, you know, talking about the struggles that women go through, we had a conversation with Hannah Rankin, didn't we, on one of the, the early pods about, you know, talking about periods and talking about the things physically that you have to go through. Baumgartner said she actually came on a period the day of the fight. So get your head around that. Uh, maybe that figures into to physically how she performed or how she reacted in those moments when she went for the knockout and wasn't able to get it. Maybe that was a flavour of it. Maybe it was weight. Maybe she needs to move up sooner rather than later. We don't know. As ever, I go back to, to the message we had earlier, you, you're, you're constantly trying to analyse and interpret boxing, and that's one of the, it's one of the great beauties of it. Yes, it is. Um... I think we've we've seen with female boxing in recent years um, that the very best fighters are capable of producing supersonic performances, regardless of what's going on behind the scenes. But it does bring to mind conversations you have with male fighters when they may appear below par um, or they may not fight in the manner in which you expect. And if injuries are mentioned or problems behind the scenes are mentioned, you just kind of presume that it's an excuse. Um, but I certainly think that fighters encounter all manner of problems that we have no idea about when we're simply sitting down and watching a fight. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I heard an interview recently. It was um, Jordan Gill speaking in conversation with, with, with George Groves and Declan Taylor on their podcast. Now, I, I heard something from Jordan Gill that I hadn't heard before, actually, talking about when he was stopped. I think it was in Peterborough when he was stopped to, on body shots. Um, and there is now this perception with Gill that he is slightly vulnerable, whether it's to the body or otherwise he marks up. He does mark up. That That's part of his kind of makeup, isn't it? But there is this kind of perceived vulnerability of, about Gil. And he was just saying in that, that particular instance that he'd, you know, he'd been throwing up for, for days. He couldn't, he literally couldn't get, keep any food down. And so he was, he was in a really bad place. No surprise that potty shots <laughs> were rather effective that night on him. And yet there is this narrative following him round subsequently. So, yeah, that sometimes, sometimes it is worth digging deeper. Sometimes it is worth opening your eyes or, or broadening the spectrum about what it is that happened and why it is that maybe it happened. What we do know is that the super featherweight division is kind of taking shape, Matt, and will do over the course of the next few months as well. Um, Joe Cardina is going to get his, his chance against Rakimov for, the, for his, the belt that he 
had taken away or from him or had to vacate and, and Zelfa Barrett, of course, fought for against Rakimov and was ultimately stopped having uh, fought well. So that's coming up on April the 22nd. The IBF belt, uh, Cordina, is going to get his chance to fight for that. Jordan Gill is moving up in weight to that division as well. Archie Sharp kind of waiting in the wings. Frank Warren's man who's been quite vocal on uh, Twitter waiting his for, for his shot and he might get a shot at some stage against Emmanuel Navarrete or maybe Oscar Valdez, who was supposed to fight Navarrete, got injured. Looks like they're trying to get Navarrete against Valdez on the card, so Archie Sharp might have to wait for his time for the WBO Challenge. But it was Navarrete who ultimately came overcame Liam Wilson, Matt, but he may have been extremely fortunate to do so, given a long, long time to, to get over an early knockdown in the fourth round. The old, uh, the old pesky gum shield problem. Tick tock, that... tick tock, tick tock. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, just brought to mind Diego Corrales, in all yeah. honesty. Um, which we now, with hindsight, call one of the greatest comebacks in boxing history. It was astonishing at the time, but go back and watch that again the Diego Corrales Jose Luis Castillo the first fight where Corrales all over the place kept spitting out his gum shield consciously I believe in order to buy extra time and Navarrete was doing something similar I believe imagine if he'd been disqualified Matt imagine you know probably you know or some kind of action taken which it you know rather than just a point you can understand why Liam Wilson at this point is furious when he looks back on it. Um, when he was dropped later on in the fight, he didn't really have his wits about him to do something similar. And frankly, it's astonishing that Navarrete did. He looked in a really bad shape before he got knocked down. I think it was a left hook that kind of really discombobulated him and he was kind of clinging on and then he eventually dropped and it was a really heavy knockdown. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's over 20 seconds. I think it's about 25 seconds. 28, second, 28, 28 I counted, yeah. Um, the, from the moment he hit the deck until the fight resumed. Um, and that's, that's a long old time, isn't it? It is. And, and I don't think you can have a, you know, a kind of blanket rule interpretation. Because, you know, for example, you know, we're celebrating... Anthony Yard against Baterbiev. But Yard's gum shield came out several times, didn't it? There's no way on earth Anthony Yard was spitting out his gum shield. And imagine if the referee had deducted points or there had been a disqualification, for example. Say they, they started to, to, to toughen up on those instances. You couldn't apply a blanket rule to that because it just wasn't. But what if the referee got it wrong and interpreted it wrong? Um, so it's a, it's a really difficult one to police, I think, and then to referee and for there to be a rule of law that is different to the one that's in at the moment. Um, but there are some instances where you you can see it's probably necessary or needed. You could also argue that certain fighters are not clever enough to do a similar thing. There's certain defeats uh, that we've seen throughout history where... Boxers could have avoided being stopped if they had have bent and uh, broke the rules a little but we, bit. We don't want that culture, Matt, do we? That's the that's the not equivalent saying, of saying, that's the equivalent not, of strikers diving in, in the box. 
not saying we do want that. I'm not saying we do want that. But how many times have we seen um, a fighter disqualified for bending and breaking the rules in those particular situations? That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and that is fair. So let's just recap. You, you've seen it yourselves. You, you probably counted the clock like me, but when Navaretti went down, it was a left hook and then there was a barrage of punches and eventually he went down 28 seconds from the time that he went down, hit the canvas, to when they were told to box on and they, they engaged once again. 28 seconds in between that. An awful long time given to Navaretti, who... He was all over the place, Matt. He was he was even worse than usual. Um, I mean, he is a bit of a rugged slugger. I, I said last week, I said he's, I said he's class. I, I meant relative to Liam Wilson. We know he's proven at that level. It, I didn't mean he's a class act as a fighter because he's he is crude and he's very raw, isn't he? As you as you rightly highlighted, but up in weight for the third time, three weight world champion now. My goodness me, you can't take that away from him, but. You know, I, I must admit, if you if you'd never seen Navaretti before and you just watched him on this night, you be, would be wondering how on earth he's become a three weight world champion. He's really effective at the same time. Um, I suppose he's what you would call unorthodox um, in the manner that he fights. Um, he doesn't bring to mind any particular style. He doesn't bring to mind fighters of the past. He does what he does. And I think as a consequence of that, he's effective because people struggle because it's difficult to practice against a style like that. Um, and that's what I was getting at with Erica Cruz, you know, yes, to, to yes. a lesser extent. But he does look, he looks beatable. And he, he, sometimes he can look devastating. Sometimes he gets people out of there. Sometimes he wins every round. But increasingly, um, the longer a fight goes with Navaretti, um, you will see more and more weaknesses that opponents will believe they can exploit. But he is one of those fighters that looks so very beatable from the outside, but once you're inside mm -hmm. the ring with them, they're a horrible proposition. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we call him three-weight world champion. I think that speaks more of the era of numerous belts than it does of the fighter. Um but I think there'll be a few super featherweights looking around and thinking they fancy their chances with him. Yeah. Liam Wilson showed that he's, you know, someone who can box to a plan. He's, he's a neat boxer. He's got the fundamentals down pat. Um, whether he's, he's absolutely world-class, that's, that's debatable. But you could also say there's no debate. He, he probably should have become a world champion or could have become a world champion on that night. Ultimately, he was stopped in nine rounds. Valdez was in the ring afterwards. Looks like him against Navarrete's one that um, top ranker are trying to make. And, and Valdez, having been supposed to fight Navarrete uh, previously before getting injured, is likely to get first dibs with Archie uh, Sharp waiting in the wings and uh, this weekend, Ray Vargas in that same discussion, um, fighting against O'Shaq Foster, who's a Texan who's 19 and, and two, but he's on an unbeaten run of nine over the last six, uh, six and a half uh, years. Vargas, who we remember um, beating Gavin McDonald, don't we, in Hull about six years ago now, Matt, he, he's he's moved up in weight again and, and, and again and um, he's unbeaten. He's another one, though, isn't he, Vargas, where you watch him and you think, well, how is he still unbeaten? 
Um, but he has a unrelenting engine and he doesn't waste a great deal of energy while using it. Um, but this fight, I think, is a really difficult fight to call. Um, Foster is kind of the archetypal bad boy turned good, um, lost his mom at the age of 12, lost his cousin a few years later. Um, he was imprisoned at Orange County, realised he had to leave Orange County after that, moved himself to Houston, only ever now goes back to Orange now just to see his family, um, and has shown some real good form um, in his recent fights. And I wouldn't be surprised to see him get the victory this weekend. I think given their respective experience at something approaching the top level, you probably have to favour Vargas um, if you're making um, an educated call on it. But I've just got a feeling there might be a minor upset this weekend. Okay. It would be a huge upset if Adam Azim didn't win uh, to Wembley. That would puncture a reputation, a burgeoning one. And also the plans of, of those in the Azim business. He, he takes on a Nicaraguan who's, who's unbeaten so far, although it's a first away fight for Santos Reyes. Um, Azim coming into this one on the back of that sparkling performance against Ryland Charlton. Now you were, I think it was more style over substance. I know you were quite hot on it as a, as a, as a scalp, but I, 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 I'm slightly more lukewarm than you. But what you can, you can deny is the, the potential and the, the seeming talent that Azim has, and it's going to be interesting to see how he progresses as he goes up through the ranks. I think he's a difficult one to to match. I think he's, you know, he's going to be a, a bit like um, Moses Atoma, who we we spoke about. Last week, Matt, it's going to be really tough to, to match him. And I, I think not overfacing him, but getting him rounds and, and enough of a a stubborn test, that, that's going to be the key thing for, for him. I, I don't know if this weekend is it. We'll see. Yeah, I, I don't think this weekend is it. Um, and I think Adam Azim thus far has looked faultless. But very often fighters with the ability of Azim, with the punching power of Azim, when they're seven and oh, eight and oh, nine and oh, they do look faultless. Um, and that's kind of the point is for them to look as spectacular as possible, to feel as invincible as possible. Um, and I think that he's being matched reasonably well at the moment, not necessarily down with him being a bill topper at this stage of his career, uh, particularly in fights where his opponent is probably something like 33 to 1 against to win the fight. Um, but he's a really, really exciting talent. We speak to him in this week's Boxing News. Aforementioned Declan Taylor carried out the interview. Um, and he talks about all sorts of things. And his dedication to the craft is something that has always been impressive with both of the Azim brothers, but particularly Adam. But Adam, when he was younger used to kind of carry around a notebook with him 
and he would just be watching fights all the time and he'd be making notes on what certain fighters did well, what certain fighters didn't. Then he would go to the gym and he would practice this and he would practice that. And judging by this recent interview, he's still doing very similar things. He says he finds it very hard to do anything other than either train or watch boxing. And that is how he spends his, his waking life. Mm, um, incredible, really. And not all young fighters have that. Um, so, yes, it's premature to call Adam Azim um, a future great. But at this stage of his career, he has all the ingredients to go very, very far. And... I love watching him fight. And I hear exactly what you're saying about about uh, Ryland Charlton. I, I understood it as well at the time, but Charlton is, is tough as they come and the manner in which Azeem knocked him silly, I think just speaks volumes for what he's got packed inside those gloves. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Shane McGuigan is, is getting extremely excited about his potential. And he's a guy who's had talent through his... His hands is Jim, like like a, a Coley and Josh Taylor, uh, of course, uh, Cal Frampton previously. So he knows Azim is exciting. Elsewhere on the bill, of course, you got to Caroline Dubois, another step forward for her. And I suppose people, in terms of the really competitive eye-catching matchups, uh, Matt, you pick out a favourite, but, but Shelley against Sims Jr., probably close, or, or, or Denny against uh, Brad Poles for for what a, an English title, the middleweight. Yeah, I think we've... Um been critical in the past of Sky Sports shows since uh, Boxer took over but we have also heaped praise on what does appear to be um, a dedication to providing top quality kind of trade fights and I believe that Zach Shelley versus Anthony Sims Jr. will be very competitive. Maybe you lean towards Sims, but there's something about Chelly that I've always liked. Again, he's he's very dedicated, but he was almost forced into it, of course, by his father. He speaks openly about that, and his father still trains him. Um, but there is something about Zach Chelly that you wonder if he if he's got it in him to take it to the next level. And if he has, then he will beat Anthony Sims at the weekend. But it's a tough fight to call. Again, leaning towards Sims. And Tyler Denny... For the English middleweight title, gets Tyler Denny versus Brad Pauls for the English middleweight title. Um, I think that could be the fight of the night. All of that available on Sky this weekend. And uh, it was Sky Boxer Office in, in 97 that we're going to take a look back on now in this week. Yes, we take you back to the 8th of February 1997 at uh, the, the, a boisterous London arena in the Docklands. Nassim Hamid. Uh, the latest step on, on his journey, the 22-year-old uh, exciting young featherweight champion who was defending his WBO title for the fifth, fifth time against long-standing IBF champion and well-travelled American Tom Boom Boom Johnson, who was defending his IBF title for the 12th time. Matt, he, he was kind of the, the Glenn Johnson, the road warrior of his time, wasn't he? Remember Glenn Johnson? Fought people like, well, he fought everybody. It's easier to mention who he didn't fight. Uh, latterly, George Groves. But uh, yeah, he fought just about everyone. Tom Johnson was was doing that 
uh, at uh, featherweight before. He'd been to, to to the UK before. I mentioned he fought at the point, the the, the three arena where, where maybe we'll see Taylor Serrano too. He fought there in 96 on the Hamed Medina uh, undercard. He'd, he'd been to France a couple of times and he was back in the UK up against the, the rising young star. Tom Johnson at the time was really highly regarded. Um, he wasn't the favourite going into this fight, but he was, by a fair distance, the most accomplished and most talented fighter that Hamed had fought to this point in time. And for me, uh, this is my favourite Nassim Hamed performance. Um, okay, it's not quite as one-sided as the coming-out party against Steve Robinson, um, but I think he showed bit more versatility than we'd seen before he took a few shots along the way and he got a really accomplished belt holder out of there um in eight rounds and people who listen to this podcast read boxing news know that i tend not to call belt holders world champions but if you are going to compare what tom johnson was doing at this point with champions of the past um he had an. You mentioned there the twelve, the twelve defenses. I think he, Eusebio Pedrosa, um, who had had twenty-one or something along that night, was the only was one of the only featherweights in history to have achieved more um, title defenses. Um, and Hamed was in sparkling form, wasn't he? Yes, he was. I must admit, it was it was a scrappier fight than I remember. I, I when we chose this. And before I went back to, to, to review and look back on it again, my memories of it were that the, the Badillo fight, um, which would come up later in the year, that, that's, I think, my favourite Hamid performance. The Kelly fight's my favourite Hamid fight. But I think that the Jose Padillo fight, in terms of Hamid, just boxing off the back foot, just flicking him with jabs from, from distances, that's my favourite Hamid performance. But I had in mind that this was one of his, he's one of his best results. It might be his best result, actually, against Tom Johnson on paper. But I thought this was probably going to be his second best performance. And actually, he is a bit scrappy. He's, he's a bit wild in this fight, Hamid. He's, he's missing a lot, isn't he? Ultimately, the finish is just pure Hamid, you know, ferocious, snarling um, and outrageous punching power for a, for a featherweight. I mean, you can see the reaction every time he clocks Tom Johnson throughout. You can see the the reaction in his body. But it, it's not quite the, the, the visual performance that I, that I remembered it to be. No, and I, I hear that. And I think you, you, you make a wise observation in that it might be his best result. Uh, you go back and you look at the Jose Badillo fight where you would say that Hamed was flawless on that night, but you also then look at the level of Jose Padillo's opposition before and subsequently, and you might make the observation that he absolutely should have been flawless against an opponent like that. Um, whereas Tom Johnson brought an awful lot to this party. Um, he was an established belt holder, and he was regarded as one of the best fighters in the entire sport. Not top five, pound for pound, but in and around 
the the discussion for a, a, a place in the top 10. Um, and I just remember the first time that I watched this fight just being so impressed with Nassim Hamed. And the first time I saw Nassim Hamed, um, even when I was a teenager, just finding him a bit much. Um, <laughs> it was when he beat uh, Vince- Vincenzo Belcastro, won every round, but it was the manner in which he was standing over Belcastro, I think in the 11th, um, that I thought, my goodness me, who on earth is this guy? <laughs> who does he think he is? But then fast forward to this Tom Johnson fight and, yeah, I just fell for Nassim Hamed, hook, line and sinker. Time and place for you. The night before had been the Lewis McCall 2 fight in Vegas. The, the night before this Hamid against Tom Johnson, um, Oliver McCall had, had unraveled in, in, in Vegas in that uh, particular rematch. And this on, on Sky Box Office, the event, the, the start, there is a, on YouTube, there was, uh, there's a couple of different versions, but there's a kind of hour, hour and 10 long one that's the, basically the, the Sky Box Office version. And at the start of it, they go, Paul Dempsey's hair hasn't changed a jot in all those years. I'm so envious of it. It literally hasn't changed a jot. Um, but they go to Rob, Rob McCaffrey at the Sports Cafe in London. And they're speaking to some some American people. And it's just full of people on the sauce. It's so raucous. It, it, made, me, it made me think, almost imagine they decided to, to go down the, the pub and get some reaction from, from the boozer and Shameless. <laughs> with Frank and with Frank and his pals, it, it was a bit like that—just absolute chaos. You just can't imagine that they'd allow that kind of unpolished version to to be on the screens these days. But that was the '90s, man. It just—it was kind of raw, wasn't it? Britpop and and all of that. Oasis versus Blur, Jarvis Cocker ringside. I think my eyes. Uh, spotted the the pulp lead man, so very much of its time this fight. And Naz, I think it's fair to say, was emblematic of that that the kind of buzz and crackle, the the snap and the pop of the of the nineties. Yeah, he really was. Um, speak about hairlines. Mine has changed actually dramatically <laughs> uh, from this particular point in time, February nineteen ninety seven. Uh, where I think I was growing out my Liam Gallagher cut and kind of growing it long again. But it would only be six months before I was standing in the toilet, well, in the bathroom actually, getting ready to go out in Magaluf. And my friends were hammering on the door saying, Matt, come on, we're all waiting. We, we, we need to get to the bar. And I was looking at my hair and the realisation that I didn't have as much hair as I'd had on the previous year in Tenerife struck me like a hammered right hand. Um, pretty pretty tough times, Alex. And I hear, <laughs> I hear you, <laughs> and when I hear you bring up hairlines and you talk about past glories regarding it um i'm just so glad that it happened then i can't imagine how i cope with it if it was going on now 
I am so glad that I've been bald for such a long time and I don't have to deal with it alongside all the other things you have to deal with in middle age. Yeah, listen, you've taken control of your life. So the summer of 97 was the was the, the summer of transformation and evolution for, for Matthew Christie. Fantastic. Uh, uh, Naz stopping Tom Johnson in eight rounds spectacularly. I think I heard an Ian Dark line in commentary where he said coming into this fight, Nassim Hamid's opponents had been knocked down 43 times in 24 fights. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Almost two knockdowns per fight, I think, more or less. I'm pretty sure that was the stat Ian, Ian Dark came up with in that fight. And it was interesting at the end of it because Glenn McCory said, and the, the, this discussion or these two kind of quotes or lines from McCrory and Dark kind of underline the discussions that boxing fans were having about Hamid or the raging arguments people were having about Hamid and probably still to a certain extent have had to this day. And that is McCrory saying maybe beating Tom Johnson, maybe now it's the start of the legend. He was saying about Hamid, nice tee up. And Ian Dark said, well, if you're going to talk legend, then you're talking Muhammad Ali, you're talking Sugar Ray Robinson. I think we might have to wait before we start having that discussion. But that that's the kind of debate that people were having about Hamid. Is he was looking phenomenal, punching frighteningly, and that the swagger of an, an Ali and the, the punching power of a of a fighter much further up the weights, but was it you know, all those mistakes and the, the lunging in and the unorthodox style, was he for real? Or was he was he something slightly different that that's always kind of tagged alongside Nassim Hamid yeah and it is now um I don't think we could deny that he's one of the greatest fighters that this country has ever produced I think people that say he didn't fulfill his potential have a point um but you mentioned the amount of knockdowns he scored the manner in which he was winning fights um I think his kind of career trajectory at this point it the fact that someone like Brendan Ingle couldn't quite keep Nassim's feet on the ground suggests that his feet were never destined for the ground um, he was always going to believe the hype and why shouldn't he have done either he enjoyed himself for those few years and I remember speaking to Nas when he came into the Boxing News office maybe 2016 2017 uh, and we sat down, we had a chat for about an hour. Um, and he just said, do you know what it feels like to wake up every single day for three or four years knowing that there is not a fighter out there that can beat you, that you are the best on the planet? It's a feeling that you can't possibly get in any other walk of life. So if I was a bit cocky, then I'm sorry. But put yourself in my shoes. And then he went, well, actually, you can't, can you? Not many people can. Um, I suppose what I'm trying to say is, is that you can completely understand why Naz went on to do what he did. Um, and by the age of 30, was, to all intents and purposes, uh fighter who was way past his best perhaps he was always destined to 
shine ever so brightly, but for a short space of time. And maybe that star was always going to be unpicked by a Barrera. I'm not of that view. I think that was all about timing and making way. And it was unlucky for Hamid that he, he met Barrera at that stage of his career where he probably wasn't as well... No, not probably. He unquestionably wasn't as well prepared as he should have been for a fight and a fighter of that magnitude. But timing, timing, timing is absolutely everything in boxing. And Hamid was belatedly unpicked by Barrera towards the, the tail end. That would be four years away. He'd have the he'd have the up and down fights with, with Kelly, Oggy Sanchez, but before then before he got to, to Barrera and then just one more fight um, around the time after, post 9-11 in 2002 against Calvo, and then it was all over, 36-1. and one. Whereas Tom Johnson, well, he was on the slide. He would lose half of his remaining 14 fights. He'd be stopped uh, just a couple of times in his career, belatedly by Jorge Paez and Jesus Chavez when he moved up to... Um, 130 pounds, but he would still go the distance with guys like Scott Harrison, Junior Jones, and even Dennis Pedersen, the Scandinavian fighter who was unbeaten at that time and would go on to move up and wait to fight Ricky, Ricky Hatton, you may recall, uh, just a, a couple of years later. So all of these strands. But honestly, if you're a younger boxing fan, if you weren't in your late teens or in your 20s in the 90s, you just... You can't quite know what it was like. What a time to be alive. What a time to be alive. And Hamid was very much alive at that particular time. And if, like me, you're a dance music fan and you watch this fight back and you're thinking, oh, yes, it's a 90s dance tune. What is that tune? Well, it's C.J. Bolland. It's a remix of C.J. Bolland, Sugar is Sweeter, is the track uh, in... In brackets, Sugar Daddy-O. And you'll hear that Sugar Daddy-O in the, the background as it's bam, 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 bam. If we had the rights, I'd get Darren to play us out with that, a little excerpt from YouTube, just as a little treat. But for now, you just have to take my word for it. And you probably don't need to take my word for the fact that it's another spectacular Nas knockout from this week in the 90s. Go back and check that out and we will reconvene again next week. Bye for now. Sure.